want to welcome you to Sovereign Grace Church this morning. My name is Phil. I'm one of the elders here. And if this is your first time, especially, we just want to give you a welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Also want to give special welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Hoover. So good to have you here with us this morning, you all. So, yeah. Uh, just two announcements this morning. Uh, this, this evening, there is a ladies' ice cream uh, Sunday social at Anita's house, Anita Whalen's house. So, um, ladies, enjoy that. If you have questions, I'm sure Anita would be glad to answer those questions. And then the... Um, Children's ministry sign-ups are up and live. Uh, you should have received an email in that regard. It's also in the, the email Anita sent out yesterday, just signing up for the new year. Our new children's ministry years will begin in September. So appreciate everyone who serves in that way and invite uh, all of you to consider that if the Lord would have you to serve and help in the children's ministry. Lord willing, we'll make it through just with clouds and no rain this morning, but uh, we'll see what happens. I would imagine that many of you have experienced the feeling of not being wanted. Uh, perhaps we weren't part of the in crowd in school, and we'd find out on Monday morning about the party on Friday evening, which we weren't invited to. Or maybe when teams were chosen in PE class or out in the schoolyard, we were the ones or two left at the end of the line who they were fighting over not to choose for, for the teams. Or perhaps we've, even you've experienced deep rejection from someone who once was a closest friend, perhaps even a parent. And to be rejected, to be abandoned, to be left out, to not be wanted is terribly painful, isn't it? But to be chosen and to be wanted, to know that you belong, is one of the most wonderful things in the world. My title this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, is Chosen to be Holy, Predestined to be Adopted. Chosen to be Holy, Predestined to be Adopted. Last week, David led us in the song, The Glories of Calvary, and we sang, Lord, You're calling me to come and behold the wondrous cross to explore the depths of grace that came to me at such a cost where your boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were opened wide. And then the chorus says, Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. And that's exactly what the opening verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians invite us to do. And Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn there, verses 3 to 14 are one long sentence. You may have heard that before. And some commentators call it a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. It appears that Paul, as he began to write this letter, just erupted into spontaneous praise to God the Father for God's immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. So we're going to read in Ephesians 1. We'll read just verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are glorious verses. And they're also in some ways difficult verses. So would you please guide us and guard us? Lord, would you give us understanding by the work of your spirit through your word that we may know a little more the glories of your grace, Lord, the riches, immeasurable riches that you have poured out on us as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 3, Paul writes that God has blessed us with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, from time to time, I'll hear someone talk about Jesus and God the Father, sort of like bad cop, good cop. Ever heard anybody talk like that? You know, the God of the Old Testament was the angry father, but Jesus in the New Testament is the son who appeased him, the bad cop and good cop. And brothers and sisters, nothing could be farther from the truth. The Old Testament is full of God's mercy. And one of the most common verses in, that everybody knows, which is in the New Testament, of course, John 3.16, who loved the world? God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when we come here to Ephesians chapter 1, God the Father is the initiator, the giver of all these spiritual blessings. God didn't ration them out like crumbs. Here's a little bit for you, a little bit for you. He gave every spiritual blessing to us in Christ. So when you think about your heavenly father, do you think about him as the bad cop of the Old Testament? Or do you think about him in this way as a benevolent God, just overflowing in blessings? This whole paragraph is full of, of the Father's initiative. He is the subject of almost every verb. He blessed us. He chose. He predestined. All of these gifts come from the Father through His beloved Son. And we're going to look at the first two of these spiritual blessings this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, please don't believe the lie that your Heavenly Father is stingy and grouchy and miserly. Let's take our cue from the man who penned these words. Paul was under house arrest, and he was so filled with praise that he he couldn't put his pen down for 12 verses here, just speaking of the glory and the riches of God's grace to him. And it all comes to us in Christ, in the beloved. And this morning, we're going to talk about election and predestination, which can be emotional and and controversial topics for us as Christians. And sometimes we just want to avoid it. But if we're serious about our Bible reading, we've got to wrestle with what these terms and concepts mean. They weren't invented by Augustine in the 4th century or John Calvin in the 16th century. These ideas, these terms come from God who tells us that he elected Israel in the Old Testament to be his special people And he elected us as believers in the New Testament to be his saints. And it may raise all kinds of questions in your mind. It's okay. 
When these things were first explained to me as a young adult, I didn't like it at all. I fought it. I challenged it. I asked all kinds of questions. But I had to deal honestly and wrestle with Scripture. And if this is new to you, that's all we'd ask you to do. Just look at, see what Scripture says. Wrestle with it. We're not expecting anyone to walk away this morning from one mess and say, wow, you've answered every question I ever had on the topic. But these are precious truths to me personally as a child of God and to us as a church. And they they anchor us in the love of God. And so where we're going this morning, I have three main points. Point number one, chosen and predestined. Point number two, on what basis? And point number three, to what end? So point number one, chosen and predestined. Point number two, on what basis? And point number three, to what end? And my first point will have four subpoints here as we walk through it. So subpoint number one, under chosen and predestined, subpoint number one, the Old Testament background and the meaning of election. God's election of Israel in the Old Testament is the background of the New Testament concept of, of election. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses tells the people as they're waiting on the edge of the promised land, waiting to go in and take the land that God has promised to them, Moses says to them, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that, that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery in Egypt. Did you hear all those terms? The Lord has chosen you to be a treasured possession. He has set his love on you. He's chosen you. He loves you. That is at the heart of God's electing grace. And so this word, to elect or to choose, this, this idea of election carries with it these ideas in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One, God is most often the subject of the verb to elect or to choose in the Bible. And in every situation, God was aware of all the options when he made a choice. So with Israel, he knew all the nations. He told them, I have chosen you to be a treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And God chose Israel. To choose one or some inevitably involves not choosing others, right? So to choose some does, does involve a not choosing or a rejection of others. But that choosing of the one and the not choosing or the rejection of the others is not based on the merits of the one and the demerits of the other. It's not a choice based on merit at all. Or is it, and it's not a rejection based on disdain. Neither the chosen or the unchosen have any claim on the one who chooses. But the choosing of the one isn't a random, impersonal choice. Rather, like when it talks about God choosing, he made his choices with great personal interest. We see that there in Deuteronomy. 
Love motivated him. He wanted them as a treasured possession. It was not an impersonal, cold choice. So that's the background and the meaning of election. Subpoint B, the meaning of predestination. The Greek word is praorizo, pra meaning before. And in orizo, you hear the root of our word horizon, right? Orizo, horizon. So what, what it means is to beforehand, to set a boundary, to determine or to predestine something. And predestined is, is almost a literal what translation from that Greek word praorizo, to predestine something. The word is used six times in the New Testament, and several of them are in relation to salvation, but at least one is not. And listen to this, where, where, where Luke in the book of Acts uses this word predestined. Very interesting. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the apostles had just been arrested, beaten, and they come back together, and they're praying for boldness in the face of persecution. And in their prayer, they speak of the most horrendous sin in the history of the universe, the trial and the execution of the Son of God. And this is what they pray. They pray, Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they did, they were full free agents in doing the trial and the execution and the most sinful act in human history. And yet Luke says this was predestined, exactly what God predestined would happen. So predestination does not mean that we're robots. Pilate and Herod, they were full free agents in what they chose to do against Jesus. And yet, God had predestined that. So here in Ephesians 1.5, this is the same word, predestined, when God says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God determined this ahead of time. He marked out our destiny long before we even born. That's a little bit about predestination. Now, subpoint number three, when? When did this election, when did this predestination take place? Well, right there in verse four, it says, God chose us in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. That's when very clear about his election, his choosing. But you know, predestination with that, with that prefix pre tells us this was also done at that same time. He set our destiny before time began. You know, in God's mind, who would belong to him as his people was a higher priority than creating the world because he chose that first. He chose his people. Brothers and sisters, he chose you and me to belong to him before he created the world. Doesn't that just blow you away? That was a higher priority to him than creating all the galaxies, all the mountains, all the creatures on this world. 
Subpoint D, whom? Whom did God choose here in Ephesians 1.4? Well, there are basically three views or three answers to that question among evangelicals. And I can summarize them quickly here in three, well, three different ways. Okay, did, did God choose or elect Christ? That's one view. Or, second view, did God choose certain individuals based on their foreseen faith? That's a second view. A third view is, that did God choose certain individuals not based on anything in, in them, but based entirely on his own gracious choice? So did God choose Christ? Or did God choose some individuals based on their foreseen faith? Or did God choose some individuals based on nothing in them, but entirely in his own gracious choice? Well, with the first view, first view there are a couple immediate problems with that view, that, that the election was a choosing of Christ, not of individual people. So people who take this view, then they'll say, God chose Christ as the means or source of salvation, but God didn't determine who would believe in Christ. But right here in Ephesians 1.4, it doesn't say he chose Christ, does it? It says he chose us. Now the first immediate reference of that us would be the Ephesian believers whom Paul is writing to. But it would also include all of us who have come to believe in Christ, right? God chose us, not Christ. But even more conclusively, in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 25 to 30, where Paul, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, look at yourselves, Corinthians. There aren't many of you who are wise or powerful or of noble birth, but God chose you. That's the same word. He elected you. He chose you, individual correct Corinthians, in spite of your being nothing. He chose you for salvation in order to shame the wise and the powerful. So Paul points clearly to their individual election, not to a general election of Christ. So I think we can set aside that first view and pray that the rain goes on by. And look at views two and three here. So view two, did God choose certain individuals based on their foreseen faith? And did he look down through the corridors of time in his omniscience and he knew who would choose to believe in him and who wouldn't? And based on their choice, is that how God elected them? Or did God choose certain individuals not looking at what they would do or anything, but purely of his own free grace? He set his love on them. We believe that the latter view is the correct understanding of what the Bible teaches. And this leads us to point number two, on what basis? On what basis? What is the ground of our election and predestination? Why did God choose some and not others? Chuck, let me know if you see anything coming real close with thunder or lightning. We okay right now? Okay. We'll hang in there and see what happens, all right? So on what basis, what is the ground of our election? Why did God choose some and not others? Well, at the heart of the debate in this question is who ultimately determines whether a particular individual will be saved or not. Is it God or is it that individual? 
Who holds the deciding vote in your salvation? Is it you or is it God? All of us as evangelicals agree that an individual must believe in Christ to be saved. So we're not debating that. But the question is, did you and I pull the trigger to believe in Christ? Was the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts merely influential and not conclusive, not effectual? In other words, did he lead us to a certain point? He brought us the gospel. He raised doubts in our minds about previous beliefs. He brought conviction of sin. But then leave it up to us to cast that determinative vote to trust in Christ and be saved or not. Is that how it happened? Or did God determine beforehand in his free and amazing grace to set his affection on certain ones, including us, and then predestine us to be conformed to the image of his son and to effectually call us through the gospel, even when we were dead in our sins, and then make us alive together with Christ. That's what, that was what it means to be born again. God made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2 says, so that our spiritual eyes were opened And we saw the saving work of Jesus and responded in faith. Our understanding from this and many other passages is that left to us, none of us would ever have responded in faith. None of us would have. I grew up in a Christian home with godly parents like many of you. But my heart was not bent toward Christ. I may have appeared to be a model kid at times, but my life was dominated by conceit and pride, contentiousness and condescension, fleshly cravings and sinful desires. I was exactly how Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 describes me. And it describes you too, my friend, before you knew Christ. It says we were dead in our sins. We aggressively walked in line with the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan. We were living in the passions and the desires of our sinful flesh. How, in that state, how could any of us ever have responded to the gospel on our own? How could we respond when we're dead in our sins? I've often been sobered when I think of a number of the missionary kids in Japan that I grew up with. Many of them were close friends. And today they are angry at God and they hate the gospel. Why did I come to trust in Christ and not them? Was I smarter? Were my parents better parents? No. Was I more spiritual? I didn't see the light and get on the right side of the history on my own. The answer to why me and why you is right here in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He set his affection on us. He predestined us long before the world began that we would be adopted as his sons. And while there are aspects of this that we'll never be able to fully understand and answer, what the Bible does tell us is this. First, God's election of us is not based on anything we do, good or bad. Romans 9:11, when Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, and he says, well, they were not yet born, the twins, remember, Jacob and Esau, when they are not yet born and done neither good, either, nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election 
might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God set his affection on Jacob. What it says. Nothing in them. I think Jacob was a worse character than Esau. But God set his love on Jacob. God's election is based entirely on his mercy and grace. Romans 9 goes on to say, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Brothers and sisters, it wasn't because of our foreseen faith. Certainly God knew that, but he knew it because he was the one who purposed that that would happen and determined that would happen. For many of us, I think our main objection to the doctrine of election grows out of our own pride and self-determination. This pride was a major stumbling block for me when I was first confronted with these truths in my early 20s. Our innate pride, our selfish, our self-centered overestimation of our own goodness. So when we approach this topic of why God chose whom he chose, we're trying to find the answer to that question at the wrong end of the stick. It's like looking through a telescope backwards. We're looking inside of ourselves, trying to find an answer. Why did God choose me? And the answer isn't there, brothers and sisters. Right here in Ephesians chapter 1, in the middle of verse 5, it tells us where the answer lies. In the middle of verse 5, it says, God predestined us through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And purpose, there really should be kind intention. A couple of the versions have kind intention. So the word is eudokian, E-U, like eulogy, a good word. It's not merely purpose. It's his kind intention. So according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that's why God chose us and predestined us. Don't think of God's purpose as something arbitrary or impersonal or cold, brothers and sisters. Far from it. God's purpose is full of kind intention and much grace. Chapter 2, verse 4, when we get there, it adds, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why he acted toward us. Chapter 2, verse 7 goes on and adds, ta- tells about the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. Think about it. If God's choice of us is based on his foreknowledge of our choice of him, then God's electing grace isn't much to write home about. Just a shrug. Why would Paul... Be so amazed and excited here about the fact that the omniscient God knew that he would choose God. That's not what Paul is talking about. And besides, when you read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, it didn't happen that way anyway, did it? 
On the road to Damascus, Paul was stopped dead in his tracks by the sovereign, infallible God of the universe who chose him and radically changed his life. Throughout the ages of eternity, brothers and sisters, God is going to highlight this glorious grace for us to enjoy and the entire universe to see. What drives God's eternal purposes in your life personally as well as the universe cosmically is not cold reason or ivory tower wisdom, but it's a Vesuvius heart of grace and kindness that is impossible to keep from overflowing in spiritual blessings to the ones that he has set his affection on. So on what basis does God choose some? He chooses them on the basis of his good pleasure, his kind intention, and the riches of his grace. Harold Honer in his commentary writes, the point is, That if God had not taken the initiative, no one would have his everlasting presence and life. The real question isn't why God chose some, but why did he choose any? Isn't that the real question? Knowing who we are, why? Why would God set his affection on any of us? The answer is not in us, but it's in his amazing love and grace. And that leads us to point three. To what end? What was God's goal? What was his purpose in electing and predestining some to belong to him? Look at verse four again. Or verse five there. This is amazing because Paul says something different here than where our conversations about election tend to go. I think when we discuss election, we often miss this point. I miss this point because Paul doesn't merely say he chose us that we should be saved, although that's certainly true. But that's not what Paul underscores here in verse four as the specific purpose of God's choosing. Do you see what it is? He says, God chose us. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he predestined us. For adoption, not merely to salvation, yes to salvation, but to adoption as sons to himself. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly father's end goal in choosing you to belong to him forever was to bring you out of the sin and selfishness and perversion that characterized your life and everyone around us and make you holy and blameless before him. John Stott writes this, says the doctrine of election is an incentive to holiness, not an excuse for sin. True, the doctrine gives us a strong assurance of eternal security, since the one who chose and called us will surely keep us to the end. But our security cannot be used to condone, still less to encourage sin. Some people seem to imagine a Christian talk to himself in such terms as these. I'm one of God's chosen people, safe and secure. So there's no need for me to bother about holiness. I can behave as I please. Such appalling presumption finds no support in the true doctrine of election, however. Rather the reverse. For Paul here writes that God chose us in Christ in order that we should be holy and blameless before him. Far from encouraging sin, the doctrine of election forbids it and lays upon us instead 
the necessity of holiness. Holiness is the very purpose of our election. Ultimately, it is the only evidence of our election. You know, there's a very close parallel to this in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Paul talking about the church and in marriage, and he uses this marriage as the illustration of Christ's love for the church. And he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. And it's actually the same two words, holy and blameless. Christ loved the church, his bride, and he is going to present her holy and blameless before him. So if we put Ephesians 1.4 and Ephesians 5.27 together, it looks as if from eternity past, God the Father had his son's wedding in view. God was preparing a bride for his son. And so he chose us to be that bride, that we would be holy and blameless, part of the bride of Christ. Can you conceive that? God wants a holy bride for his son. Christ wants a beautiful and holy bride. Holiness is not an optional exercise for us, brothers and sisters. Holy living is not an AP class for a few Christians. That's at the heart of God's entire life purpose for us. And when it says that he might present us holy and blameless before him, certainly that has reference to that final day. But it's not merely that final day when we stand before him, but, but it's today. It's every day. God's purpose is that we would be holy and blameless before him. Practically every New Testament writer speaks of the necessity of holiness if we are to reach heaven. God chose us that we would be holy. But there's another end goal expressed in chapter 1, verse 5, which is equally stunning. God predestined us for adoption as sons to himself. And by adoption, we are made full heirs with our eldest brother, Jesus. Now go figure that one out. Is there any possibility that there would be some merit in us, some qualification, some reason in us that would cause the heavenly father to say his beloved son, you know what? Let's share your internal heralds with, with your eternal inheritance with some of those cool people down at SGC and Woodstock. Can you imagine? There's no way we qualify in ourselves to be adopted as sons and share the inheritance of Christ. The reason, the ground for that, the only basis for that predestination is his kind intention of his will. And his glorious grace. So God wants a holy bride. For his son. And he wants beloved sons and daughters. In his family. So brothers and sisters. As we come to a close here. How do you view yourselves. In your relationship. To God. You see you see yourself as a. Second or third class Christian. As a piece of used furniture. At the thrift store as not really wanted in or belonging to God's family, but somehow you snuck in the back door. The way we think about ourselves in relation to our Heavenly Father has a significant effect 
in our motivation to holiness. If we see ourselves merely as third-class Christians who eat in the servants' quarters because we're not wanted at the family dinner table, then there's little reason to be too concerned about the way we behave. Who cares about holiness? Nobody cares about me anyway. But if we see ourselves as part of the bride of Christ, if we are, see ourselves preparing for our soon-to-be wedding, and men, if, you str- if your masculinity helps you str- makes you struggle with this, get over it, okay? We are part of the bride of Christ. Or if we see ourselves as a son, an heir of the father's estate, then how we live, how we guard our hearts will be of utmost importance to us. Brothers and sisters, your bridegroom is anticipating his wedding day with great joy and he will have a beautiful and blameless bride. Well, it's not necessary for you to understand the biblical doctrine of election fully or even to agree with our understanding of it to know that God, your heavenly father, is unbelievably gracious and overflowing in mercy to you as a sinner. And if you are not a believer here this morning, our invitation to you, God's invitation to you is don't worry about election. Just come and trust in the glorious Savior who gave his life, died on the cross for your sins to free you and make you holy. Trust in him, my friend. If you are trusting in Christ, then brothers and sisters, pray. Pray that you would understand these truths like Paul did. If, if we don't have some of the response of Paul in his excitement and delight, it's probably because we, we don't understand what we need. God wants to understand from this passage what it means to be chosen and predestined by the God of the universe. If you and I could feel this and embrace God's electing and predestined grace like Paul did, how it would anchor us through suffering and disappointments, through the fears and uncertainties of life, even through rejection and abandonment that we experience at times. If we don't have this kind of anchor, then, as Tim Keller writes, our existence becomes anxious and fragile because circumstances in life are always threatening the very foundation of our lives. But if we believe and embrace these marvelous truths about how our God has blessed us, then we will be less susceptible to being tossed to and fro by every disappointment or anxious piece of news that comes our way. Brothers and sisters, God has chosen you in Christ. He chose you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you to adoption to himself as sons. According to the good intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed you in the beloved. Amen? Amen. Friends, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the rain held off and we are done and you're dismissed. So enjoy fellowship together and look forward to seeing you next Sunday, if not before. God bless you.